This is Big Talk, Michael Glab here. Saturday, December 5th, two days from now, sad to say, will be the last Krampus celebration in Bloomington. Head Krampus Wrangler here, and the founder of the long-standing popular Christmas season event, Kel McBride, set a goal of 10 live Krampuses when she kicked off the annual event. Last year's Krampus was done virtually, online, thanks to COVID-19 pandemic restrictions. But the big show is back this year for a final time. The last live Krampus was held in 2019, and that event drew some 5,000 people. Entertainers, costume characters, musicians, hula hoopists, and of course the big scary Krampus monster delighted and scared children and adults. Saturday's event, dubbed The Final Rampage, will begin at 5 p.m. at Showers Common, outside City Hall, 401 North Morton Street. The Krampus Bazaar at the Common will be open from 5 till 8 p.m. The Rampage, with children and parents, characters, and all other participants parading through downtown Bloomington, begins at 6 p.m. For more information, go to the Bloomington Krampus Facebook page. Our guest on Big Talk today will be Kel McBride, filling us in on the origin of our town's celebration, as well as her own history of initiating local events. But first, let's listen to a clip from the BuzzFeed Unsolved Network with a brief historical perspective on Krampus. This is... Big talk. Everything has its opposite. Good has its evil. Light has its shadow. Nice has its naughty. And St. Nicholas has Krampus. Typically described as a half-goat, half-demon creature, it's easy to compare Krampus to, or even mistake him for, the devil. Because the two figures bear such a striking resemblance, the Catholic Church tried to eliminate Krampus celebrations during the 12th century. This attempt was unsuccessful, and the tradition continued. His image alone ought to be horrifying enough to keep naughty kids in line. But those who dare challenge Krampus, as the legend suggests, would endure an extreme punishment of being beaten with birch twigs, kidnapped and taken back to his lair, tortured, and even eaten. Krampus's pre-Germanic origins are unrelated to Christmas, and is thought to have initially been a part of pagan rituals practiced for winter solstice. He later became associated with Christmas, which, as mentioned, the Catholic Church tried to ban at one point in time. He is sometimes referred to as the Christmas Devil, While his true origins are unknown, the myth of Krampus has roots in what is now considered Germany, where traditionally, people began celebrating Christmas earlier in the month. The name Krampus comes from the word Krampen, which is German for claw. In Germanic tradition, St. Nicholas is a benevolent figure who gives sweets to good children, while Krampus, his malevolent counterpart, beat and kidnapped the bad children. In essence, their origin story recounts how St. Nicholas and Krampus traveled together working as a team, rather than opposing forces, one bearing rewards while the other brought fear and punishment. The good and the bad duo would arrive in tandem on December 5th, which is known as Krampenschnat, which translates to Krampus Night. They'd go door-to-door, and either Saint Nick would leave presents for the good children, or Krampus would beat the naughty ones with sticks and branches. In some lore, he might even eat them or take them to the underworld. You are the head Krampus Wrangler. 
I am. And you know what? That is also about ethics and morals, too. Everyone seems to think it's just this party where we're trying to scare people and it's just these beasts. But the legend of the Krampus is all about accountability. It's about that there are consequences for bad behavior. So, I mean, especially in the last few years we've been living in, a lot of people haven't had to experience the consequences of their behavior. And I appreciate the legend of the Krampus for that very reason. And for people who aren't familiar with the Krampus, Krampus are the evil side, I don't want to say evil, it's sort of like the dark sidekick of St. Nicholas, um, which was our route for Saint Santa Claus. So St. Nicholas keeps a list of who's been naughty or nice in essence. He gives the good kids uh, toys and presents and fruit and candy. And if they're on the naughty list, he sends the Krampus after them. And the Krampus are these tall, hairy beasts with long um, horns and claws that frighten, terrify, and might even carry you away in a sack back to their lair. Bloomington Krampus is one of the largest Krampus events in the country. I believe there's only two others that have now just recently got to our numbers. Um, in 2019, which was our last in-person event, there were 5,000 plus people in the crowd watching that event, which is a substantial event for a size our town, a town our size. So You're not kidding. Now, how did you handle it this past Christmas season, December 2020, during this lockdown? You know, we did some new things. We really wanted to avoid the just best of video concept. So we created some new videos with our um, crew at home. We roused the Krampus from their slumber and just made them stay away from everybody. So they, you know, we don't want the Krampus to get COVID. So, and so we created some fun videos for people to engage with. We also put together Krampus experience packages so that people would have things that they could do at home. Now, these just weren't t-shirts and things like that. There were um, activity books of ways to make a Krampus cocktail to Krampus cookies. There were bells that people could ring that night to say that the Krampus were coming. There were activity books that included drawing and coloring and different activities. But yeah, it was just a variety of activities. So we wanted to engage people at home and we hosted a live video one night so that people could all kind of be together at a specific time and watch the video. And yeah, people want to engage with that. It is still all available. If people want to see some of those videos, they're all on YouTube. So if you type in Bloomington Krampus, you can see some of the fun things we did this year, including some Krampus caroling. There's so much more that you have done. How about this? The lively death lady counseling people on how to look forward to their own death. Not a thing that I look forward to. Do you look forward to your own death? Count. I look forward to it being the way I hope it is. You mean make plans and set things exactly. up? Exactly. Yeah, I'm hopeful that my health care follows the guidelines and wishes that I want. I hope that my body is just, you know, accommodated in the way that it, I want it to be. I want a funeral that represents my uniqueness and individuality. And I want my legacy, both in my finances and possessions, as well as my ethics and morals to last beyond my, my death. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty tall order. And that's what I help my clients do. I help my clients put together a plan so that their family doesn't have to wonder what would they have wanted, but can instead think about what they meant to them. We're not talking about you're saying, well, in the year 2035, that'll be it. I'll be done. And I'm going to make plans to get out of this mortal coil at this time. What you're saying is, is make all of those plans. And the thing is, 
in this culture at least, America, Western culture, we don't want to think about that. We think about it all the time. Huh. Uh, think about how many true crime shows are people spend their time thinking about death and dying that way. We like to think about, but that's, that's somebody else's death. Exactly. Yeah. You on. know, though, what I find is that when I start talking to people about death and dying, they want to talk. I've never heard any. Very rarely does anybody just shut down, and most of those people are currently in grief. All right, so they do need their personal space to deal with death and dying the way they're looking at it. But everyone else I talk to mostly is like, oh, I know what I want to do with my funeral. Oh, I want to have a tree planted on me when I die. You know, like people have some pretty strong emotions and feelings about this. So to me, my goal is to make sure they're fully educated about what they want and what the options are so they can pull together a plan and then communicate that clearly with their family. I mean, almost every client I've ever worked with leaves with a plan that includes an element they had never heard of before they talked to me. Hmm. So to, that to me is success, that they get a good educated decision to make sure they get what they want. It seems to me that a lot of our popular health practices and so forth, and a lot of the rages and manias for constant exercising and putting the perfect food in your body and all this is sort of a way to say, I'm never going to die. I'd like to think of it as I want to live as fully as I can and as healthfully and strong as I can before I die. Yeah, but I like pizza. So, you know, <laughs> I, I got like to put that into my body in huge quantities, maybe too huge. In April 2019, for gosh sakes, you did the Before I Die Festival. As a matter of fact, part of it was even held in the Rose Hill Cemetery. And you had things like the Death Cafe. Will there, will there be another one at some time in the future? Oh, I do so hope so. I mean, that's the plan. So in 20. 16, 2017, I don't know, one of those years, I helped found the Before I Die Festival in Louisville, Kentucky. I was living down in Louisville for a couple years, and I worked with a great team of folks, um, Justin Magnuson, as well as Deb, Tor sorry, Deb Tuggle, I had a name flip there, <laughs> and we created a Before I Die Festival down in Louisville, Kentucky. The Before I Die Festival started in the UK. And then there was one in Indianapolis, which is kind of surprising, put together by the IU Nursing Program. And then we put together two down in Louisville together. And then when I moved up here to Bloomington again, I put one on here. And the Louisville folks are still putting one on down in Louisville, Kentucky. So we did one here locally, which was great. Yeah, we had um, uh, Drink to Your Death, which was a great conversation over <laughs> some tasty beverages. We had um, a... Uh, cemetery in the park we yeah. had a tour of some headstones we had the death cafe which again is another conversation there yeah. were some lectures on campus around different topics around ethics um there was a wonderful program about death and dying of our pets and how to honor our, their, our pets and issues with that and then of course i put together a couple um, programs for people to do some documentation about what they wanted for their own end of life you also had people write their own obituaries you know, I'm a big believer that thinking about your obituary is going to help you live a full life. If you go to write down what your life's all have been about and you're like, yeah, that's not enough. Why, why am I not quite doing as much as I might want? It's a, it's a good way to kind of spark someone to live 
a little bit more. At the same time, working on your own obituary gives people a head start for when you die. If you've got that in your death and dying documents, they're like, all right, here, I can get a good go. I don't know if anybody has seen some of those obituaries that people have written down for themselves, but they are stunning. I mean, you can go online and check out, you know, uh, autobiographical uh, obituaries and things like that. One of the reasons I do the obituary class is because so many people write um, what is often considered a traditional obituary that lists all of these intimate details of the person and answers every single security question you could ever want. So yeah, don't talk about their dog, don't talk about their high school, don't talk about their mom's maiden name, or you just put that person up for identity theft after they died. Uh -oh. And it's really common. So I like to teach people how to create an honoring obituary that protects the person's credit lines. Are you a member of the Order of the Good Death? I am. <laughs> now that's... Now, that's an outfit that was put together by Caitlin Doty, who has made a big splash in the recent few years. Uh, she's the mortician, blogger, author, YouTube personality. She writes in a humorous, she sort of reminds me of you. She's wonderful. I highly recommend people, if they haven't seen it, Ask a Mortician on YouTube, and she makes sure that people see death and dying from different perspectives. Everything from considering what is a, are there really Viking funerals? I highly recommend watching the Viking funeral one. Um, she recently posted a video that was pretty traumatic, um, talking about the challenges of being a death care person in LA right now while their numbers are spiking from COVID and how there has been a lot of love and support for the first responders, but we've not been giving as much love, support, and policy and financial help to the last responders. Now, she has written three books about uh, the... The death industry, basically, we can call it that. Uh, one of which is called, uh, Will the Cat Eat My Eyeballs? And that is big questions from tiny mortals about death. Hey, talking to kids about death. It's wonderful. I highly recommend it. I'm actually going to get, re I'm getting ready to do a presentation for the Association of Death Educators and Counselors on high school death ed. Um, both of us really strongly believe that people should be talking about death and dying right away. You know, it's something that if more comfortable we are talking about it, the more easily we are able to process it when it happens. Wait a minute. I went to high school and I know for a fact that when I was in high school, I knew, I knew I was never going to die. Of course you did. But yet, hmm, school shootings, HIV, AIDS, car wrecks, right? Like if we think about what the reality is for students, they, they could use some help. Um, if sex ed is important to high school students, death ed should be important to them as well. Now, you seem to be in tight with a certain uh, generation of people who went to Indiana University. Did you go to Indiana University? Yeah, I've got my undergraduate and my graduate degree here. And you kept in touch with a great number of people. I guess, were you then a contemporary of uh, people like Tony Brewer? Uh, Tony Brewer was the DJ at Eroticon, every yeah. single event. He was our music director. So yeah, I met Tony when we were both, was I still in school? 
I think I had dropped out at that point in time, but yeah, he, he was living in Collins and I met him through a bunch of my friends that were living in Collins. Yeah, I took a couple of years off and drove all around the country for a while and then came back. But yeah, I met a lot of those people in 1989, 1990, 91 that are some of the core people still in my life and a lot of those folks are still the core folks involved in these projects. I feel like when I'm putting something together, my goal is to give people the opportunity to do something they already want to do. I met you when I first arrived here in Bloomington. I had Sorry. wheels on my feet, if I remember correctly. That's right. You were at the tail end of your career at that time. This is about 10 or 11 years ago. You're at the tail end of your career as a roller girl. And as far as I know, you were in at the start of the Bleeding Heartland Roller Girls they're now known as the Bleeding Heartland Roller Derby. You were in it at the beginning, weren't you? I was. Um, I will say, sadly, that Bleeding Heartland Roller Derby has come to an end. But there's always people inkling about starting up another league, so I'm always optimistic that somebody can do that. For the sheer fact that so much comes out of that. I was one of the key founders here for the Bleeding Heartland Roller Derby team. We started off as a co-city um, team with Indianapolis and then realized that wasn't going to work and started our own league down here. We were, one, uh, we were the first non-urban roller derby team. Now, when did you first hear of or know of such a thing as roller derby? when I was short, and I mean super short. <laughs> I was a kid in the 70s, and I used to watch roller derby, um, the old versions of roller derby, kind of the spectacle, professional wrestling side of it, and I remember distinctly telling my mother as a small child that I wanted to be a roller derby skater when I grew up, and uh -huh. when I, I had an opportunity for work to travel to Seattle and picked up an alternative news, news weekly and saw an ad for a roller derby bout out there and flipped out <laughs> it was sold out um i talked my way in by doing volunteer work i got to meet the skaters i got to see the back end of how things work i came back home and talked to a couple friends of mine who were skaters i'm like we are starting a roller derby team and we did it, it took a lot of effort because back then nobody had seen roller derby so i'm trying to recruit people to play a game they've never seen most of the people that started with us had never seen about before they played their first game. When you first saw it on television, are you talking about the version where there was a rail around the track and they would knock each other over and bend each other in half over the rail, that type of deal? So yeah, that was banked track roller derby. And there are people that play banked track roller derby now. We played flat track here locally. But yeah, the banked track roller derby of the 70s was more closely related to professional wrestling in that, ah. yes, it was a physical endurance sport in that people were really playing. However, the games were pre-planned a little bit. You knew who was going to win. You had an idea of some of the moves that might happen, but those were tr still true athletes. We were playing maybe once every two weeks at most, you know, as far as competing. These people were playing five days a week and traveling wow. all around the country to play. So I in no way want to dismiss those early roller derby players, but it no. was a different, a different kind of game when it came around to us. You know, it's a funny thing. Uh, so many of the people who got involved with uh, roller derby, uh, especially here in Bloomington, were women who were sort of like coming out as their own strong and determined selves and it was just beautiful to see 
And that's exactly what I meant by it. I hope it comes back and locally because so many people got so much out of it. And that was everything from the skaters to the refs to the volunteers. Like it was, it was inspiring. Um, some people who never really had a sense of community, you know, as an adult found new community. People who'd never played sports before in their life started playing sports with roller derby. You know, everything from the announcers connecting and the friendships that happened, the relationships that blossomed as part of that. I mean, the physical strength, both physical and emotional, have been intense. I've had a few skaters since then say it truly changed their lives. Everything from leaving abusive partners to starting businesses because they had that confidence. I mean, it's, it's made a big change for a lot of us, and that's, that's global now. You know, when we started again, we were one of the first 50 leagues in the world. And now, gosh, I, I think it's up to 12,000? Maybe I'm wrong, but it's a lot of roller derby teams around the world. When you say that uh, Bleeding Heartland Roller Girls and the Bleeding Heartland Roller Derby is no more, you're not saying that the whole trend internationally or even nationally is going downhill. Oh, no. People are definitely still playing roller derby. I mean, you can pop on Facebook and see roller derby groups all over the place. There's leagues everywhere. Um, there's leagues that started back then that are still fully active and engaged. Just the local team, the local league disbanded. Now, there are definitely players that would love to start again. The local roller rink would be excited to help. Um, encourage skaters to skate again. It does take some leadership, though. It really does take a small core group um, to make it happen. Um, it, ta it takes a Kel McBride. Uh, it takes a team. It does uh -huh. not take an individual. It for sure takes a team. I could not have pulled that together by myself. Big kudos to Veronica Heights and Elizabeth Beauregard, who were there at the beginning, pushing really hard to make it happen. We, at times, didn't think we were going to make it pull together. I mean, there were definitely times where we were like, well, if we don't meet this deadline, we, just, we should just stop. But thankfully, we were able to get enough players together, and then it blossomed. I mean, there was a point in time where there were, you know, lots of players with Bleeding Heartland, whereas at the beginning, we were just struggling to get 10 players. Did you pay any physical price for being a roller girl? <laughs> um, I skated for two and a half years, and in that two and a half years, I broke my toe, I crushed my ankle, I dislocated my knees repeatedly, I slipped a disc, I separated my collarbone, I fractured my cheek, and got two concussions. Uh, in, two, in two and a half years? Two and a half years. That's crazy. Now, I mean, soldiers barely go through that. Well, and I have to acknowledge, you know, I, I was an anomaly, though in roller derby, we always said it's not a matter of if you get hurt, it's a matter of when and how bad. Uh -huh. And I was one of the how bads. I also had some health issues walking into it and some ones that have endured because of it. Uh, I have a history of concussions, which makes me more likely to fall and hit my head. So that contributed to some of my balance issues as I played. Well, that must have been tough. And it's too bad to hear that the uh, Bleeding Heartland uh, Roller Girls, the Roller Derby, is no longer active. You know, though, I got to acknowledge, I mean, there are Roller Derby teams regionally. I mean, so if somebody locally wanted to play, they could go around to another city and do that. So I believe that Columbus is still active. I'm positive that Indianapolis is still active. Louisville has a team. So, I mean, if people wanted to play, they could definitely go play. 
well, that's great. It's, it's good to hear. But, you know, it seemed like there was just this tight-knit group of people who were involved here. It was, it was like a club, and it was a club of strong, interesting, dynamic individuals. It, it was. And, you know, I'm super thankful. I met some amazing people I would have never met because of roller derby. Um, two or three of them are, I would say, part of my core friendship group. And that wouldn't have happened without roller derby. And I think that's amazing. There are definitely people that started back then that are still involved in roller derby in some way, shape or form. So it's amazing. It truly surprises me how long that project endured. I've started a lot of projects with people and this one lasted longer than any of them. Now along about the time that I first met you and was finding out about roller derby and all here, then I learned that you had recently at that time, like I say about 10 or 11 years ago, at that time had been involved with something called eroticon. Mm -hmm. Now what was that? So at the time, I was a sexuality educator, as well as I worked at the Kinsey Institute for a while in their libraries and archives. It was a wonderful place. And during that time, I was trying to figure out how to help people with behavior change. HIV AIDS was still a huge issue at that time. We didn't have the detailed cocktails of medications that were available. So I was trying to figure out ways to help people adopt both safer sex sorts of um, behaviors, as well as getting into relationships and staying in relationships with quality communication and really clear understanding of what people's needs and wants were. So I was trying to figure out how to do that. And I found some research that said that the more comfortable someone is with their own sexuality, the more likely they are to communicate with their partners about what they want for pleasure, as well as what they wanted for protection. Uh -huh. so I started thinking, like, how could I make people more comfortable with their own sexuality? I did some, you know, looked around, tried to see what other people were doing, and found out about some events in London that were amazing. And basically, they were live events that celebrated sexuality. So there wasn't any sex that was happening at these events, but it was like fantasies up on stage as well as people dressing up and having you know kind of costume aspects to things they like the sexy dancing sometimes there were little play spaces that people could act out little things but nothing again illegal or inappropriate to happen in public so i know of 12 weddings that have happened from those 10 years as well as numerous people who tell me that they were much more comfortable asking for condoms and birth control because of their comfort so you're saying this thing went on for 10 years? 10 years. We hosted, what was it at the end, 27 events in 10 years. At what kind of places? Um, it was all at a club in Bloomington. Well, and one time we did an event in Indianapolis. But huh. the event, the, the club was called Mars. It was called Axis. It was called Jake's. It was called the Walnut Street Tap. Because it was a 10-year project, anybody familiar with that building knows that in the past it had rotated um, names and ownership a little bit there. So, yeah, we, were, we utilized that space, and it was wonderful and perfect for us. We ended up quitting after 10 years because it got too big. Our last oh. event had 1,100 people at the club, a.k.a. breaking every fire code available. <laughs> and, you know, anytime an event gets really, really large, the more challenges and problems that come along with that. And our small crew that was putting that together 
we just got a little tired of it. And I have to acknowledge that a lot of the core people involved with Eroticon are the same core people that brought together Bleeding Heartland Roller Derby. Oh. And they're the same people that are also working on X Hunt and a lot of the same people that helped with Before I Die Festival. Eroticon was a start for me and the friendships and connections and skill sets that we all developed in that time have served a lot of us very well in creating new events. Kel McBride, thanks so much for being on Big Talk. <laughs> <laughs>